You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Go Wild is a free social community created for and by hunters. Go Wild has recently partnered with Mountain Tough for a free 30-day workout program designed to get you in shape for turkey season called the Go Wild Challenge. Download Go Wild to sign up and let everyone know in a Go Wild post that you're joining us. Then, each time you do a workout, tag Go Wild and Mountain Tough to hold yourself accountable. Also, Go Wild will be attending the Great American Outdoor Show February 4th through the 12th. If you're in the area, stop by booth 412, meet the guys, and learn all about Go Wild. Visit DownloadGoWild.com and sign up today. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, You can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Welcome to Maximize Your Hunt the podcast dedicated to those who want the most out of their hunting property. This podcast explores land management, habitat improvement, and hunting strategies that will help you maximize your time in the field. Follow along as industry professionals that live and breathe white-tailed deer share their secrets to success. And now, the founder of Whitetail Landscapes, your host, John Teeter. Hi, I'm John Teeter, Whitetail Landscapes. This is Maximize Your Hunt. Welcome back, everybody. Hopefully, everybody's doing well and you enjoyed the last podcast. Uh, I'm excited today because we have Todd Waldron on. Todd Waldron is with the Rough Grouse Society, and this is not our typical conversation. We focus on deer and deer management. In this case, we're going to get into rough grouse and the importance of them on the landscape, and there is an overlap. It's really important to recognize a lot of these animal species that we don't pay as much attention to, certainly even on this podcast, provide a benefit on the landscape. And I think it's really nice to have an opportunity to kind of get in depth and think about, you know, overarching ecology and other plants and animal species that are important to the benefit of this, in this case, you know, the future of, I guess, the habitat we're trying to develop. And, and this habitat will be specific to grouse today. So let me, let me pull Todd on the line. Hey, Todd, how you doing? Hey, John, I'm great. I'm thrilled to be here. A big fan of your work and your podcast and uh, looking forward to the combo. Well, you know, a few years ago, I was on your podcast and I appreciated the uh, opportunity to, uh, you know, to, to be part of, you know, that. And then obviously to see you take a career change, you know, you're, you're with Rough Grouse Society. You've been with them for a few years, kind of heading up, you know, I think the Northeast segment, but, you know, they're all over the country providing kind of education and uh, support to a whole bunch of landowners. And, and it's really important that, you know, people pay attention to this particular animal because it really is meaningful in the landscape. It's a habitat specific type animal that, that really requires, you know, very, very specific vegetation, composition of vegetation. And we're going to get into some of the details of 
you know, layout design, thinking about, you know, the importance of this particular animal on the landscape and also how that'll benefit your deer hunting. I'm looking forward to the conversation. And, you know, I know a lot of your listeners might be deer hunters. They might be turkey hunters. They're, they're working toward habitat enhancement um, toward, uh, toward those species and toward those pursuits. And I hope they find this conversation beneficial. You know, there's a lot of overlap and, you know, rough grouse are, are bellwethers. Uh, we call them bellwethers. They're like barometers of, of diverse forests and healthy forests. And so, you know, they play a biological and ecological role um, on the ground in the, in the food chain cycle and, and you know, in, in the ecosystem. And they're also just representative of uh, forest diversity that benefits deer and turkeys and everything else. So uh, looking forward to talking about it. Yeah, and we, we would say if you're thinking about grouse just at a high level and the importance of young forests, that's critical to their survival. And across the landscapes that both you and I work on, you know, you're seeing a decline in young forest. And it's important for people to recognize the value of the plant species at a certain age and time to certain animal life. And this particular, you know, grouse and 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 they're all over the country and i think they go as far down to georgia and i guess out in the midwest and all sorts of places but you know they they don't just like cold weather and uh you know if you have grouse on your landscape it's just not aspen stands you hear a lot of people focused on you know a a variation of tree species that prefer but aspen in a lot of cases because of its food production and value in the landscape is a preferential tree species when starting to do the layout so we'll explain some of the preferred you know, tree species, shrubs that, that provide value and are ideal. So why don't we kind of go into maybe some of the specifics and thinking more about grouse, you know, what their kind of life cycle is. And as a result of that, let's kind of break down their preferences on habitat. And then let's try to kind of start to do a layout and design so people have a better understanding of, you know, uh, what, they, what they can do on their property. And in addition to that, Todd, I want to just, you know, treat grouse as kind of a buffer species. You know, they are predated on by uh, great horned owls and hawks and, you know, foxes and coyotes, but they, they provide a buffer or an opportunity to be a consumed species that give opportunities for our fawns and uh, does and bucks to, you know, live more prosperous life. Because again, these, these animals are, are feeding kind of the other predators on the landscape. So they, they play a role in the whole ecology side of things. So I think that's important for people to recognize, number one. Number two, they're fun to hunt. And I've hunted them for years, you know, when I was a kid hunting with my father, you know, woodcock and grouse was a, a big thing for us growing up. And, you know, we shot our fair share and we missed many, many grouse. And, and certainly, uh, you know, I think you can probably relate to that. Absolutely. And, um, you know, along with all of what you just said, which is spot on, John, I would say that I hope that you find this conversation helpful in the sense that what we're talking about with habitat tweaks and enhancements um, you know, the features that we're talking about are, you know, while they're specific to grouse in terms of some layout and some forest structure around uh, brooding and nesting and drumming and all that stuff we'll talk about, uh, it's improving the diversity of your habitat for other species too. So, you know, what we like to say is if you have a forest or a property that has grouse in it, and chances are you're going to find a whole lot of other species around too. So we hope, hope you find that helpful. Yeah, and I think it's important to start thinking about these tree species in a little bit more depth. So, you know, as an example, we'll talk a little bit about thermal cover and its benefit, 
And, you know, other, you know, I guess mass producing trees, hazelnuts could be one of them. Uh, high bush mm-hmm. cranberry is an example for grouse, but it provides a form of cover for both uh, species of, you know, we're talking deer and grouse for that matter. So it's thinking about the purpose of some of this plant life across the landscape and how it benefits, at least protects and provides food sources for the animals that we're trying to, you know, promote on the landscape. So let's kind of dig into some of the things. Like if you're thinking, you know, and, and it doesn't have to be Northeast specific, right? Because in the Midwest, you know, there's a lot of oak hickory forest. Um, there's some savanna areas. I mean, thinking about kind of the landscapes and the preferences, we try to, you know, kind of categorize, you know, certain vegetation types as preferential. And I said earlier, aspen, young aspen mm-hmm. stands, old aspen stands, but kind of explain maybe some of the ideal settings that you see grouse kind of, I guess, propagate well on or just survive well on. Yeah, sure. And, you know, so let's start out a little bit just by kind of talking about the life of a grouse and just like other species like deer and turkeys, how their habitat needs change over throughout the year, right? So like, just like we're talking, thinking about food plots and bedding cover, travel corridors, you know, with grouse, we're talking about foraging sites and nesting areas, um, breeding areas or courtship areas, which we call drumming areas, and like brooding areas for their chicks. And so uh, one cool thing that's, you know, grouse uh, that I really love about grouse is that, you know, while they're like incredibly resilient and you can find them in 30 states and yes, the populations have, have declined over the last 20 years because of uh, a decline in habitat diversity, uh, forest diversity. So, you know, they, they, they can be found they're They're incredibly resilient in the sense that they can eat a lot of different food and yet they're also very sensitive to um, cover, okay? So they, like, they really need to have forest diversity in the sense of different um, components of habitat diversity that are, you know, relatively close by. So like a home, uh, grouse is non-migratory, so that means that they spend their entire life cycle here in New York, if you're listening in New York or the Northeast or wherever you're listening, um, unlike woodcock that migrate in the south and then come back in the in the winter or in the in the spring rather um, so you know average um, home range for a male grouse you might be talking like you know 10 to 25 acres um, so it's pretty tight right so what that means is that you don't have to have a, like a huge property to to be able to manage for a grouse um, but it is important to have some features kind of close by and some diversity so, you know, in terms of kind of their life cycle is, you know, the, the females um, typically have eggs in May. Okay. So, you know, the breeding cycle occurs in the spring. The males have what's called drumming areas or courtship areas. And uh, essentially what they're doing is um, they have like a drumming log that they, that's where they're doing like the, the audio kind of wing beating. that sounds like a tractor starting up. And usually the drumming log is about 12 to 18 inches off the ground. It's in enough uh, sapling cover that gives the grouse protection from avian predators, usually a few thousand stems per acre. And so typically a small site that might be five acres, the females um, will be attracted to that. And then they have a nesting area that is in a slightly more open wooden setting. So like, you know, picture uh, a forest, a hardwood forest where there's pole-sized hardwoods and maples and birches and cherries or aspens and maybe some small saw timber. And so grouse are ground nesting 
Um, they'll nest at the base of a tree. They typically have eight to 14 eggs um, in a clutch. And the hens will typically sit on those for about three weeks. And then the chicks are born, let's say, late May, early June. You know, the first two weeks, just like turkeys, I mean, the first couple of weeks are the most critical for the um, for the survival for those chicks. Uh, they can mature incredibly fast. Um, they end up eating, like, their their whole diet in the summertime is, like, insects and protein and invertebrates and spiders. And so having, you know, access to some open areas, maybe it's a skid trail or maybe it's a small log landing, you know, less than a half an acre in size. Um, like sometimes, you know, whereas deer will use food plots that are much larger than that uh, because of avian predation, you know, grouse tend to like those smaller areas. But what is important is having kind of a mix of that, you know, close to those nesting and brooding areas. So, you know, summertime, the grouse are keyed into, you know, some insects um, for the chicks to to grow and they'll reach biological maturity in 16 weeks. So in the summer, by the time, you know, September, October comes, those chicks are fully biologically mature and then dispersing. Todd, um, I want to yeah. back, back up for a second. So you talked about two things, and I want to go back to nesting sites, for example, because, you know, just this reproduction cycle and, you know, the time they're sitting on those clutches and getting everybody, you know, prepared, right, for the, for the big jaunt out into the uh, insect world. What are ideal nesting settings kind of like? Because I've got a couple ideas I want to just throw out there. You know, where we're talking about stems per acre, and then we're talking about these, you know, more open areas. I've found you have kind of a dense stem per acre. You're dropping maybe some larger trees in those areas. Some of them may be living. In fact, I've seen on client sites this this year, probably clients that are listening to this, I've identified sites that I think would be preferential. What I've noticed is if there's a, a tree that gets wind thrown and there's multiple trees that are wind thrown in an area, but there's still space where they can maneuver. And those are maybe more dense areas, but they're not easily traveled by predators and there is overhead cover to some degree. They have a mm-hmm. tendency to nest in those areas or, or lay eggs in those areas. And usually they're at a base at the bottom of a tree that's hollowed out or or kind of just kind of a, I guess I would say a cove-like structure. I've seen mm-hmm. those specific examples. Sometimes they're near briar patches. But like to your example, I've seen them in even, I guess, settings where there, there is more kind of open hardwood. Again, a couple trees get wind thrown and, and there's a nest setting there. What would you say would be kind of ideal? Because I know that you've got to worry about you know, the avian predators, but obviously ground predators as well. What, what have you seen work? Yeah, that's a great example. That works with the wind throw sites, John, and you're right about, you know, the hollow trees. And so, you know, typically what I think is ideal is like an open kind of forest nesting setting where maybe the trees are, you know, anywhere from eight to 14 inches in diameter, breast height, you know, if for forestry folks, the the density or the basal areas could be 80 to 100. Um, it gives enough visual, I think, for the grouse to be able to see predate, you know, predators and stuff. But one thing that's, that is really important to that is like the proximity to some denser cover, like within 300 feet. So like if there's, uh, if there's like a brooding site nearby where it's the dense, the stem density, or at least the mid layer shrubs you know maybe there's some hazel maybe there's some dogwood nearby or alders something that gives a little more cover a younger forest that's you know five to 15 years old and then kind of 
or maybe abandoned farm field with shrubs and a lot of just like, you know, overgrown kind of stuff. And then like within that kind of matrix of, of having some trails or log landings or something like that, that might be seeded in with red clover, white clover, you know, that kind of thing. So uh, having kind of the, the, all the boxes checked within a, a relatively small area, maybe five acres or so helps a lot. So Todd, the, the, the example there of clover where you have these, I guess, you know, small settings, uh, we'll say they're less than maybe a quarter of an acre, maybe even around a tenth of an acre, or an eighth of an acre, depending on the size. You know, we're trying to create kind of these openings and adjacent to those openings, I like some form of cover. And again, this could be shrubbery, like you said earlier, dogwoods. Uh, if you're in wetter areas, maybe nanaberry or some type of plants like that, that provide that kind of structure, that more dense structure that they can you know, jump into or hide into, you know, they don't need a lot of space or they don't need a lot of space to run away. They typically do fly away in those examples, but they don't fly very far. So when they get up in the air, they've got to be able to maneuver. And I think that's Mm -hmm. kind of important in those examples. So you could have a layer of shrubbery right around the edge, and then they fly off into another layer of shrubbery. So you're creating just multiple edges within the landscape that they have some escape cover into. And I've seen that work really well in hunting scenarios. I mean, think about this. It's really hard to get in there to shoot them because they go to the next layer of cover and then the next layer of cover. And so they always have those escape opportunities that, that I've recognized. But having that clover as a food source, this is a little bit different from turkeys and a little bit different for deer. You know, they don't need, I mean, in this case, is they're, they're, they're eating a lot of insect life in that example. And deer obviously need that plentifulness of, of kind of large mass areas of clover. But mm-hmm. you're, you're kind of creating this environment where these little microclimates and they've, they're kind of micromanaged and, and, you know, allowing, I guess, kind of the ultimate selection of food and cover. And that's really ideal. So they aren't being attacked. And, and again, they prosper because, you know, the building of their bodies throughout the, this life cycle so they can survive the harsh winter months. I mean, they're kind of adapted to, to surviving in, in winter conditions. They do do really well. And, uh, they do much better than turkeys, actually. And I think that's there is a reason why there is a decline in turkeys as a result of this. But they've kind of adapted to the landscape a little bit better, I think, than turkeys have. So I just kind of given some thoughts just off my head when I'm thinking about design and layout on the landscape. Yeah, that's such a good point, John. The microclimates are really important. And, you know, I've learned that since working with RGS, just poking around the woods with some RGS members. I mean, there's nobody that knows grouse covers like Rough Grouse Society members who have been out in the woods with their setters for 40 years. And they just have a knack for finding small little pockets of cover that, you know, that maybe you or I might not even notice, but it's like, oh, there's a little bit of hazel over here and it's just enough. Or, you know, there's some dogwoods or there's this alder patch. And so the micro situation is definitely valid there. And, you know, like I I was talking earlier, um, you know, I saw a study recently coming out of Pennsylvania with, you know, grouse crops and you know, I, I think there were 732 grouse crops that were examined in, I think, even January or maybe, you know, late fall uh, through the hunting season. And, you know, 63 different species were found of plants. So, you know, they're just like deer, you know, they're they're moving from, you know, insects and clover and berries and and stuff like that. Partridge berry in the in the summertime. And then, you know, into the fall, you know, their biology is changing. They're going into dispersal. They're eating buds. They're eating apples. They're eating, you know, grapes. Uh, They love grapes. Um, You name it, a whole bunch of other stuff. And then 
you know, the winter adaptation, I mean, they, they typically get by March, I think upwards of 70% of their diet is, is budding, you know, and, yeah. and like they can eat seeds, you know, they can eat catkins, they feed on um, aspen buds, cherry buds, a whole bunch of other buds. Um, so having, you know, the diversity there, um, you don't need hundreds of acres to manage for grouse. And like as much as aspen is like the miracle pill because it just checks so many things off the box, um, if you don't have aspen, if you're in an oak kind of forest zone or ecotype, you know, there's still grouse. Like there's grouse in the southern apps and they're in greenbrier and they're in oak stands. And, you know, so the structure can dictate, you know, some of the cover needs and, you know, but they're really opportunistic about, you know, what they can do and how they survive. And that's one of the things I love about them. Yeah. I mean, the ideal state is you have kind of that aspen, you know, where you're cutting and you're managing kind of a younger forest, maybe in that, I'll say five to 10 year range. And then you have maybe, you know, the, the older age class, maybe 15 to 20 and then, or maybe 15 to 30. And then again, 30 to 50, it's kind of that life cycle. And you kind of juxtaposing those against each other that's that's one strategy i've seen as a layout but if you don't have those species it's managing kind of kind of that younger forest settings i mean you don't have to get rid of you know i guess all the oak trees but if there's oak production and and you can you know increase that i think that'll be valuable and it'll be most valuable when you have kind of those young saplings that provide cover and opportunity and in that, if you have ironwood species or other, you know, other trees that produce kind of these seeds that, that they value. And I was talking to you earlier about box elder. I saw, you know, the meaning box elder. I thought that was interesting. But again, they are opportunistic and they're looking at, you know, high bush cranberry, which I have here in my yard. I've got kind of almost mm-hmm. the ideal layout and setting in my backyard. I didn't purposely design this for, for grouse, but, you know, I had my daughter the other day. You know, I had this this rose bush next to the house, and there's a grouse sitting in it. And I just, you know, the kids were, you know, poking at it. My daughter's banging on the window, scaring it. And I look out in the backyard. I'm just thinking, you know, I've been so fortunate over the years because the firs that I have laid out in concert with the Norway spruce, in concert with, I've got some white spruce, and I've just have got these little pockets of cover in concert with this. You know, it's probably about a quarter acre clover patch and uh, it's got some openings and then I've got some aspen. I've just I've got kind of the ideal setting and I'm managing that with, with briars and brambles and it just kind of promotes their interest. So they are very, you know, vegetative, selective type, you know, animals that you've got to kind of diagnose what their preference is. And I think it's important to observe on the landscape what's already naturally there and where you're finding them. So the question I have for you, Todd, is a lot of people are dealing with invasive plants and, uh, you know, a couple of those being buckthorn and bush honeysuckle, and they do provide great structure and I would say great cover for for these animals, but they may not provide a valuable food source. You know, what's your opinion of those in the landscape and and their benefit to to grouse? And and I know that's a little controversial, but it's it's evident that the the grouse do use them and, and I've seen them in patches. Yeah, absolutely, John. And especially in like abandoned farm areas and in shrublands and in areas where there's transitions. And the fact is, I mean, there's buckthorn on the landscape and there's autumn olive on the landscape and there's honeysuckle on the landscape. And there's no doubt that that stuff provides, you know, some element of cover in the midstory. Um, so I think from the predation standpoint, it, you know, it's probably not a detriment. Um, the one 
challenge is when it really starts getting so prolific that it just chokes out all the native vegetation. Um, so if it gets into a situation, you know, you think about the species you talked about that grouse like, and I can think of, you know, crab apples, hawthorns, dogwood, hazel, service berries, elderberries, grapes, blueberries, you know, they eat it all at certain times of the year when those food sources are available. So if it gets to the point where it's like it's really becoming problematic, where it's um, it's choking out some of the native habitat and food opportunities, you know, and, and if that's the limiting factor, um, then, you know, it's definitely something that needs to be addressed. And I guess, you know, the other side of things is like, try to take a holistic approach to around like working with what's there and the reality on the ground. But if there's opportunities when we're managing, like we're thinking about native forest habitat restoration and diversity, and we're trying to do silviculture for, you know, a lot of times, you know, the forest management meets a whole bunch of landowner objectives, wildlife, including, you know, deer, turkey, some grouse, plus, you know, healthy forest. And so, um, you know, can't overlook the invasives when you're trying to deal with that. You're trying to work toward native species and um, and habitat structure that way. Uh, but the fact is, it is there. It's cost prohibitive to get rid of sometimes. And so if there's other habitat features around like food and sapling cover um, that is native that helps the birds, then, you know, there is a balancing act there of, um, you know, accepting what it is for, you know, the cover strategy, but like working the best you can to provide that native habitat restoration. Yeah. And one example, as well. I'm, yeah. One example mm-hmm. I'm thinking of Todd that just comes to mind is you're looking at preferences of these, you know, non-native plants and then, you know, what you can do to replace them. I did a podcast on, you know, alternatives. Uh, staghorn sumac is a good example that you, a plant that does well in similar locations of bush honeysuckle and, you know, thinking about utilizing, you know, that particular plant, killing it, spraying it, and then taking the seed, the resident seed, which by the way, grouse enjoy those. um, So it provides structure and food and placing that seed in that location and using the top or the available stems that remain as kind of a cover source, a fencing opportunity. And you can promote staghorn sumac on the landscape. For the wetter wetter areas, you can take root cuttings of aspen. There's a lot of, you know, tag alder is a great example. That's also, you know, a food producing plant. So definitely, depending on your landscape, start looking at the different varieties of plants that produce, you know, again, a a food source, particularly a winter food source is really important because we want to make sure that survival rate stays up, right? And again, this takes the pressure off our deer. That's really critical. So Todd, I want to take you another direction. I want to start really like kind of like designing. You gave some spatial you know, uh, discussion here, three, 400 feet between, you know, uh, different vegetation types, et cetera. Let's take kind of like this ideal microclimate and let's just kind of like design it. Like, you know, there's drumming sites where, you know, the males get up and they want to beat their chest. There's nesting sites. What does it kind of look like? Can we kind of like give the, the, the listenership kind of some example? We talked about kind of a clover site, kind of maybe lay it out in your mind, you know, and we're talking about kind of terrestrial areas. So they're not really wet. And, uh, you know, how are animals, in this case, grouse, going to prefer something like an ideal microclimate? And by the way, I want to copy and paste this all over the landscape so I can have grouse all over the place because I want to hunt them. So what, what would yeah. be kind of like the ideal kind of layout in your mind? Yeah, picture like if I had 40 acres to kind of use as an activity center, right? And so, you know, it doesn't have to be like really structurally complicated, but like, you know, 40 acres with four age glasses of, of forest ranging from, 
you know, recently regenerated patch areas, two to five acres in size, up to, you know, 15-year-old stems that are broom handle size, up to 25-year-old stems that are producing twigs and buds and growing fast, and up to maybe something that's older, providing some softwood cover in there as well. So from a forest structure standpoint, the age class diversity, breaking it up into about four general age groups, and then like kind of equally kind of dispersed throughout that 40 acres. So maybe, you know, 10, eight, five, 10 acres of young forest, you know, a whole bunch in between, and then five or 10 acres of older forest. And in between that, you know, having some trails, maybe some skid trails, a log landing that's seeded in with some clover, having softwood cover, you know, having access to, you know, those, like anything else that's nearby in terms of like uh, food sources, dogwoods, tag alders, anything else like that, hard and soft mass. You know, that's kind of a situation that's like ideal. Uh, if you read, like if anybody's interested in like really digging into like grouse habitat, you could read a book by this guy named Gordon Gullion, who was from Minnesota, who wrote the kind of the premise of like, you know, how to manage for grouse. And, you know, it's upper Midwest, it's Aspen, but, you know, some of the silviculture is the same. It's like, it's even age management. It's having, you know, mid-story cover in two age stands, um, which means that there's like, you know, you're opening up the forest enough to have like a, an over higher tree canopy and then a mid-story level 15, 20 feet high or less. Um, so, you know, there's, you know, that's kind of like a situation where, you know, you can, grouse can really do well. Everything's kind of close by in that activity center. So you've got the diversity of habitat that can get through through the year. They can provide, you know, the young forest component provides that drumming cover and, and brooding cover. You know, the open older forests provide the nesting areas. You've got different food sources for different times of the year. So, you know, that's kind of a situation where that's almost perfect. And then if it's kind of juxtaposed to some old fields, some overgrown farmland, which might be, you know, something that you see a lot in, say, central New York or in other parts of the Midwest or anywhere in New York or Pennsylvania or the Northeast. You know, just having that diversity in general uh, close by, you know, and then being able to replicate that um, kind of as a mosaic or as patchwork, I think, you know, that's kind of a, a really great setup for uh, for grouse. And I think you know, when you think about that, that overlays pretty well with other species too. You know, you're providing bedding areas, you're keeping some older trees that can produce mast for deer and turkeys, you know, you've got some connectivity there. So, you know, I think that all in all, you know, any work that you're doing for a grouse is going to be beneficial for a lot of the other wildlife that you're trying to manage for. Yeah. And I think thinking about the shrubbery is really critical. You know, the, the, you know, crab apples could be formed in shrubbery dogwoods, of course. Silky dogwood would be a good example. I'm just trying to think of other, you know, hawthorns is, is kind of a low-growing tree, which, you know, you could kind of classify as a shrub depending on its structure and status. You know, just thinking about things, uh, we talked about sumac earlier, but thinking about that variety in the landscape. And again, you know, this relates well to deer hunting because when you're thinking, uh, we, we need to talk thermal really quick because, you know, I, I think it's important to add a thermal component to these areas because, you know, in these open settings, a lot of times you'll see grouse kind of burrow and hide themselves underneath, you know, a coniferous tree. 
and again, I'll bring up a non-native Norway's, Norway spruce. Hemlock is a great example. Uh, hemlock, young hemlock trees, you know, depending on their age and status and grouping, that can be a good example for them. But having, you know, those type of coniferous trees to, to give them the thermal benefit and also, you know, credit the fact that there are, you know, hawks around, avian predators that, you know, will pick them off easily in an open area. And they run from, just like chickens, they run from cover to cover, you know, grouse do the same thing. So they like to stay tight to that that cover source. So they're not they're not interested in going into these open areas. So when doing a layout and design, Todd, I think you, you really explained it really, really well. And I think some of these same, you know, vegetation, you know, qualities that we're talking about really will benefit the deer. I've talked about this before on previous podcasts where we talked about aspen cuts and the interest of bucks. Uh, bucks tend to have, you know, male deer have a tendency to be very interested in those areas because of the volume of food that's typically present. They do a lot of uh, browsing on forage that uh, aspen-related trees are, are kind of a great example for them, uh, assuming you have kind of those drier terrestrial kind of areas. So it's kind of creating these ideal settings, but making sure there's enough space for accessibility. I think with the grouse, it's a little bit different. You know, mm-hmm. the accessibility and the layers that we're talking about can be a little tighter, where I think deer tend to be a little bit more open and spatial. So thinking about, you know, escape, because again, the size of the animal is contingent on how it's going to get up and move. And, and that's the same thing that applies to, to grouse for that matter. Um, so I, yeah. I think this is kind of all interesting and interesting topic. Yeah, John, that's, that's exactly it. Like your, your point about the, the thermal cover with softwoods is so important because, you know, hardwood stands this time of year, uh, late fall, once the leaf cover comes down way too open, um, you know, susceptible to predation. So, you know, the softwood component there, uh, you know, the Norway's the hemlocks, um, you know, any softwood cover like pine, you know, can provide uh, cover, uh, from predation and a little bit of, uh, you know, just protection and also the thermal benefits. And in places where there's enough snow, uh, uh, grouse will snow roost. So if you have about 18 inches of snow um, on the ground and there's not a hard crust, they'll actually like burrow underneath the snow. And then that gives them protection from avian predators. It gives them thermal protection. Um, So, you know, in situations where there's a lot of snow, that's great. But, you know, if you don't have a lot of snow on the ground, uh, the softwood cover kind of um, makes up for that and helps. Um, so, yeah, completely agree. All right. So we're going to finish up here, Todd, but I got a I got a zinger here for you at the end. So I think this is a ton of great information and I really appreciate this level of detail. I've, I, I haven't I've been I was today looking for has there been any other really good podcasts on grouse? And this is probably some of the top content I've heard. So. The one thing I want to ask you is, uh, and this is this is pertinent to the Northeast, but I would say that there's a miss here. And the miss is simply this, uh, because I'm unable to burn legally on the landscape, at least where I'm located, I feel like that's a detriment to me, at least resetting some of these areas. Because a lot of times we're talking about wind throw, we're resetting areas. And naturally, I think fire would be a benefit to grouse. Do you feel that way too? And do you feel like it would be a benefit across the landscape Again, assuming you can manage the overstory trees, et cetera, um, do you feel like that's a, a miss in, in at least the Northeast? And maybe there's an opportunity out in the Midwest and Southern states to kind of create more opportunity for, for grouse habitat because of fire usage? I sure do, John. Like, I, I think there's a huge opportunity. For one, you know, fire has been an important tool on the landscape for, for hundreds or thousands of years, you know, here. So you take, for instance, 
um, oak forests, right? I mean, they're really, if, if you want to see what fire can do for habitat diversity, go down to Pennsylvania and check out some of the game land management that Pennsylvania Game Commission's doing. Uh, they burn about 20,000 acres a year. And that is like, not only is it good for the habitat component, but it's absolutely good for um, the oak resilience and there's getting oak regeneration and they're having stand diversity. And so all of the things that we're lacking on the landscape right now that we're moving away from um, that fire component where it makes sense, um, you know, for those uh, forest types, it's a great tool. Um, So yeah, it, it controls invasives. Like it helps with, um, you know, the forbs and stuff on the ground. It helps with regeneration. It's a huge tool. It's a big opportunity. I'd like to see more of it where it makes sense. Yeah, and I think it would help bugging sites, midsummer, you know, burns, those type of things, as well as, you know, opportunities in the Midwest where you may not have these aspen stands per se, um, you know, again, savanna settings, but you can reset with fire and you have opportunity to have kind of that, you know, young forest settings and a lot of herbaceous material. You'll, you'll get a lot of interest. I mean, they're they're known for being flower eaters, essentially, and eating the bugs and uh, any any producing seeds. So, you know, the, the grouse themselves will adapt and, and they'll do well in those settings. And I, I think it's just kind of an ideal thing to think more about on your landscape. Again, it's got to be, you know, land specific upland areas that are more prevalent or used to those, you know, you know those techniques. And, and uh, I think it's important to consider that when you're doing your layout and designs, because in some instances, you know, we've got, you know, people listening all over the place here is thinking about kind of your fire breaks and your layout. That could be another component of kind of doing your layout here. Like we explained earlier in, in some of the settings we, we kind of identified. So Todd, yep. anything else you want to get into? I mean, this is super detailed and, and I hope the listenership, cause we talked about a lot of plants and, you know, a lot of trees and age class and, you know, you know, just, just a lot of information here. Any, you want to end, end with, you know, about you, you, you know, your business, uh, you know, you know, what, what rough grouse society, you know, pr- provides in the, on, on the landscape and, and how it's such a, a great opportunity for people to be a part of it. Cause people, people can certainly join and be a, be a part of, you know, be part of the society. That's a, that's a big thing. Yeah. Um, if, you know, if anybody's interested, you want to check out our work, you can find us online at rough grouse society. Dot org. So it's R-U-F-F-E-D, Grouse Society, at uh, dot org. And you can check out some of the projects that we're doing. You know, our mission is to connect uh, conservationists around forests and wildlife. We're doing some amazing habitat work on both private and public lands um, across the country, from the northeast here in New York down to the southern apps in North Carolina and Georgia. Uh, we're helping the Forest Service get habitat work done on public lands that's badly needed uh, to get back to uh, desired conditions and diversity. Um, we're helping state agencies get work done on public lands. Uh, we're helping private landowners get work done. So our uh, roughgrousesociety.org, uh, my email is toddw at roughgrousesociety.org. So if anybody has any questions, I'm also on social I'd be happy to talk about, um, you know, any of the work that we're doing, John, or just, you know, catch up about tips around grouse hunting or, you know, habitat or any just deer hunting in general. I love hunting. I've been a lifelong hunter and um, thrilled to be here with you and your audience. 
and look forward to the next time we talk. Yeah, I can't wait to talk again. And I appreciate all this. This is really detailed and, and super valuable for me. And hopefully, you know, the listenership got a lot out of it because I did. So we'll talk again and uh, appreciate you being on. Thanks, John. Look all forward right. to it. All right. Talk soon. See you, Todd. Maximize Your Hunt is a production of Whitetail Landscapes. For more information on how John Teeter and his team of experts can help you maximize your hunt, check out whitetaillandscapes.com.